Glad to be with you as we step into this Christmas season and, and ask the Lord to show us what it looks like to, to celebrate this time of year in a meaningful way, in a God-honoring way. You know, I, when we think about God, I, I think we tend to think about Him in kind of one-dimensional terms, uh, in our relationship with Him. I know this is true of me. Um, we kind of either focus on what God is doing in our lives, like an interior focus, you know, how am I growing? How is he leading me? In what ways is he drawing me closer? How is he working in my family? How's my life being changed? We tend to kind of focus on that interior landscape of what God is doing, or we can focus on kind of the exterior. What's God doing through me? How's God using me to influence others, to serve those in need? These are all good questions to ask, but the, the problem is when we get into thinking that way is that it's never either or. With God. It's not like two channels we're flipping, like, okay, God's working in me, and over here he's working through me. No, God's desire is always to be simultaneously working in us and also through us. And it's so important for us to grasp that concept, um, because if we don't, we can become very focused on and engaged with our interior life and forget that God might want to do something powerful through us to accomplish his purposes. Or on the other side, we can become very focused on uh, helping others, what God is doing through us, doing good things, that we can find ourselves striving to do lots of really good things for someone we barely know. And so he's always working in and through us at the same time. God's interior work in our life and the exterior work through us are not in conflict. They work together. They feed each other. They go hand in hand. The Holy Spirit is shaping our hearts so that we can go out and be his ambassadors to a hurting world. It's hard to remember that, that, that he's always working in and through us at the same time. It's easier to kind of focus on one channel at a time, at least that's true for me. I remember um, this was true of me before becoming a parent. Uh, before I was a dad, I mainly thought that becoming a dad was going to be God working through me. Like, all the wisdom I'm going to pour out and all the experience and insight. And God, he's going to use me as a conduit. Little did I know the myriad of ways God was going to work in me in becoming a parent. That he would pour into me. That he would sanctify me. Reveal areas of immaturity and impatience. And, And in my experience of unconditionally loving my kids discovering a new appreciation for how God must love me. These are things that he did in me, even as he was working through me, becoming a father. Uh, You might have experienced this in other relationships, not just uh, parenthood. When you serve someone in need, when you encourage a friend, when you when you come alongside somebody is who, who is in despair, God is using you. He's working through you to encourage them. But isn't it true that he also changes you in that process? That you feel him drawing you closer to him and deepening your understanding of who he is. This is true, my Renaissance Church friends of you. You might be in a season right now thinking, man, God's going to work through us. We're going to launch this church and he's going to change lives. And that is absolutely true. But if you're not already experiencing it, let me tell you, get ready for the ways he's going to work in you through the process of launching a church. It's amazing. God works in and through us simultaneously. It's what he does. And so now we are stepping into this Christmas season, and we should ask ourselves this really important question. I'm going to put it up here. How might God want to work in and through me this Christmas? How might God want to work in and through me this Christmas?
It's a unique time of year, Christmas. It, it presents a unique challenge uh, for those of us of faith because it's a season. It comes along every year. It can, if we're not careful, become routine. It can become formulaic. This is just sort of what we do. It's like I get this drink from Starbucks every Christmas. I always watch this movie. I do everything I possibly can to avoid hearing the song Simply Having a Wonderful Christmas Time by Paul McCartney. It's just what I do every year. Look, let me get serious for a second. Anyone who knows me knows I'm a huge Beatles fan. That song is the worst. (laughs) It is repellent. In fact, this week I just Googled the title of that song, Simply Having a Wonderful Christmas Time. Just to see what comes up. I didn't even put anything, just the title. And literally one of the first articles from a reputable news source was entitled, Paul McCartney's Wonderful Christmas Time is the worst Christmas song ever and quite possibly the worst song ever. (laughs) Uh, This is a whole message, by the way. From here on out, I got distracted by this song. I got 20 more minutes of material on this song. What was I talking about? Oh, yeah, how uh, Christmas can become... Uh, just a routine. It can become very formulaic. We think we get it, right? We know what Christmas is about. Yeah, we do this every year. We get it. And so we can find ourselves in small ways and big ways, just sort of going through the motions, celebrating Jesus. Let's not do that. Can we not do that this year? Christmas is a season, yes, but the gospel is not only seasonally relevant. We have to remember always that the goal of Christmas was Easter. Christmas is the beginning of Jesus' rescue mission, the most definitive act of love that will ever be, God telling us that we are worth everything to him. That should not, cannot, must not ever become routine for us. And so let's ask God to speak to us this Christmas season? Is it a, a time of year where we focus on this and highlight it and it's joyful? Yes, but let's ask that God speaks to us how, how he might want to work in and through us in a new way this Christmas. And so to seek his uh, wisdom on that and his guidance as we always do, we're going to turn to God's word. So if you have your Bible, uh, open up to Luke chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 5. Luke 1, 5. If you're uh, unfamiliar with the layout of Scripture, Uh, The Gospel of Luke is the third book in the New Testament. It's like 75% of the way through the Bible. If you want to use one of the Bibles on your table, um, it's on page 697. Luke 1. Uh, We encourage you to take notes and follow along. We've got highlighters in the baskets there. Um, We're going to highlight some things as we go through the Scripture, point out some things that we want to make sure we don't miss Uh, We're going to look at a passage today in Luke 1. Uh, I love this passage because it literally represents the crossover in history from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Like this is the moment where those eras meet. Uh, And it has to do with the circumstances of John the Baptist's birth. God working powerfully in this family and also through this family. Um, And so I want to read this with you this morning. We're going to start in verse 5, Luke 1, 5. It says this. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. So let's stop there for a second. 
Uh, we meet two people here. I want you to circle their names, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Just kind of follow along who we're talking about here. Zechariah is a priest, and Elizabeth is herself not a priest, but it mentions she's a descendant of Aaron, which means she is a, from a priestly line, this couple. They both are from uh, priestly families. And I want you to look at the qualities uh, that are listed here that describe them. There's three. Um, it says they're righteous, they're childless, and they're very old. And there's some elaboration on what it means by righteous. They observed all the Lord's commands blamelessly. Um, these are the, the descriptions that Luke gives us of Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're godly people. They're godly people. They have no children, which in that culture, first century uh, Jewish culture, would have pushed them to the fringe being childless at their age. By their age, most of their peers would have had large multi-generational families, like lots of grandkids. That's what people were aiming for, what most people in the society would have had. They didn't. And uh, in the Jewish world, having children uh, created a sense of belonging, a sense of purpose, a sense of social and economic stability. Without children at their age was a, a tough place to be for a variety of reasons. Uh, and they're described as righteous, godly, and yet this has happened to them. Which proves, this is one example of many, that walking with God, loving the Lord, does not guarantee you a charmed life. It does not guarantee that you're going to get what you want or in the timing that you desire. They were righteous. They loved the Lord. And, and this was the situation that they were in. Some actually would have interpreted the fact that they don't have kids as God's punishment for sin in their life. That clearly was not the case, though, as we're going to see. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Now, let's stop there and get a handle on what's going on. There were 18,000 priests in Israel at this time. Lots of priests. And they served at the temple in Jerusalem. This is what it looked like in the first century. Uh, it was this massive structure, thousands of people there on a daily basis. And so they needed lots of priests. And the way it worked is that... Um, your division, it talks about Zechariah's division of priests here, uh, you serve two weeks a year. So you had a rotation, and you would serve two weeks a year. You wouldn't even necessarily live in Jerusalem. You would just go to Jerusalem, serve your two weeks as a priest. And so Zechariah is a priest. He's in Jerusalem for his priestly rotation, and he would have been there to help with everything going on at the temple, the worship services, the the many sacrifices that were going on where people would sacrifice animals to atone for sin and things like that. And, and here's how it worked. On a daily basis, there was an incense offering inside the temple in the morning and at the end of the day after everything was finished. And one priest got to go in and do this. And it, it, they literally rolled the dice to see who got to do this. So many of the, these 18,000 priests never got to do this. It's like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and it's Zechariah's turn. He gets to go inside the building. Most of the sacrifices would have happened in this area. He gets to walk through the doors and go inside the temple structure itself, which was reserved usually for the high priest and a few other high-level priests. Zechariah, one of the 18,000 on this day, gets to go inside. He's, everyone's outside praying. He's walking in there for the first time. He's by himself, and he's going to make this uh, incense offering. Here's, here's a picture. I don't know if you guys have seen this movie. It's called The Nativity Story. It's a really good 
movie. I highly recommend it about um, Jesus' birth. It includes all this stuff we're talking about today. This is a picture in that film of Zechariah in the temple beginning to offer this incense offering. So it's an incredible moment for him. And look what happens. He's in there by himself in the temple, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you're to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So I want to highlight a couple of things in there, some really important things going on. In verse 13, I want you to highlight this phrase, your prayer has been heard. This is what the angel says to Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. He's talking about the family prayer of wanting a child. It's been heard. And you're going to have a son now, even in your old age. Your prayer has been heard. God's been listening. And then I want you to highlight all of verse 14. It's talking about the son here. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. But I want you to also, if you're taking notes, circle two words within that. Uh, you and many. He will be a uh, joy and a delight to you, and then many will rejoice because of him. Here you see right there the in and through idea. God, in your family, you're going to experience joy because of this child. But through your family, many others are going to rejoice. You see it right there, God working in their family and through their family. And then uh, it also says that John will be filled with the Spirit. I would highlight that in verse 15. Before he's even born, the Holy Spirit is going to fill this child. God's going to work in John before he's even born. And then in verse 16, we see all the ways the Spirit's going to work through John as he grows up and fulfills his mission. He's going to lead people to the Lord. And I would highlight these last couple words. He's going to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He's going to, he's going to tell people the Messiah's coming. He's almost here. Be ready. That was his mission. And so this angel is there saying this incredible thing to Zechariah, who was probably just floored by this whole experience. He's never been in there before. And so let's see how he replies. Verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. My wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he'd seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service completed, that's his priestly service, when it was over, he returned home. Again, he doesn't live in Jerusalem. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown favor has taken away my disgrace among the people. I would highlight, if you're taking notes, that last phrase there, taken away my disgrace. This is what Elizabeth says happened. 
Um, that word disgrace in English is a translation of the Greek word originally written here, uh, which meant having uh, shame because of a low social status. It's a public shame. And she felt this because she was childless in that culture. And she's saying, God has taken this away from me. God had answered her decades-old prayer, I'm sure, and gave her relief from this embarrassment, this shame that she felt, this marginalization. Now, I want to skip down to verse 39. Um, This is the part where Elizabeth has an interaction with Mary, the mother of Jesus. We're going to talk more about Mary later this month, but I want to focus here on what Elizabeth did for Mary, how God worked in Elizabeth and through Elizabeth in Mary's life. Because Mary, at this time, is this very young woman from Nazareth dealing with her own public shame, this questionable pregnancy. Now look what happens, verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. Uh, They were relatives, by the way, cousins of some degree. Um, When Elizabeth, verse 41, heard Mary's greeting, the baby, that's John, leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit. Highlight that if you're taking notes. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. We know John is filled with the Holy Spirit in her womb. Now she's filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 42, in a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. So Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is working in Elizabeth and moved her to be a safe place for this young woman, Mary. I mean, imagine what that did for Mary, that encouragement, to hear Elizabeth say that she is blessed among women because Mary had been living with this rumor that she was promiscuous or sinful and all these questions and shame about her own pregnancy. The Spirit filled Elizabeth and through her provided encouragement to Mary. Skip down to verse 57. Here's where John is actually born. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he's to be called John. They said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. Okay, I have to stop right there. This strikes me as kind of funny. First of all, they don't believe Elizabeth that she knows what he's supposed to be named. Secondly, if you remember what the angel said, Zechariah can't speak, but these out-of-town guests seem to think he can't hear because they're making signs to him. And I just imagine this is all very frustrating to Zechariah. They're like, something's going on with him. I don't know. Uh, And so let's keep going. Verse 63, he asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. It's this amazing moment, this joyful moment, a moment they'd waited for for decades And so Zechariah then bursts into song. 
He just can't contain himself. And he sings about God and the great things that God is doing for his people, what God is going to do through his son, John, to prepare people for the arrival of the Messiah. So I want to just briefly look at that song that he sings, and then we're going to talk about what all this means for our lives. Apply it. Verse 67, his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Highlight that. That's the third time we've seen this. Zechariah was filled with the Spirit. So John has been, Elizabeth has been, and now Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit. And he prophesied, he sings, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's come to his people and redeemed them. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, he's talking about John, you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. You will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. I would highlight that last phrase. I just think it's beautiful. Guide our feet into the path of peace. Zechariah knows God's purpose is to send the Messiah to rescue humanity, to redeem us, to put us on that path of peace. And did you notice his song that I just read? It's not just mainly about God answering their personal prayer for their life, about meeting their needs. It's about how God worked in their family, yes, but to achieve his broader kingdom purposes, his eternal plans. And he's celebrating the fact that his family, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth and their son John, they get to play this incredible pivotal role in the grand story of redemption. So I just want to quickly summarize, you know, in and through, God working in and through these three people. Let's see what he did from everything we just read. In Zechariah, how did he work in Zechariah? He knew that his prayer had been heard after all these years. He experiences the joy, it says, because of having a son. He's learning about trusting God, that after all these years, God really was listening, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. God did all of this in Zechariah. Through Zechariah, he's going to be a father to John, this man who plays this incredible role in preparing people to hear from Jesus when he arrives. So that's Zechariah. Elizabeth. He worked in Elizabeth, her too. Her prayers had been heard. The joy because of John learning to trust God in a new way. Remember, for years she's been praying to have a child. He removed her shame, she said. God did that in her. And then also she was filled with the Spirit. This is all stuff God did in her. Through her, she's going to be the mother to John the Baptist. And she was used by God to be an encourager to Mary in that pivotal moment in her story in and through Elizabeth. And then John, in and through already when he's, you know, he hasn't even been born yet, filled with the Spirit. God is working in him. And he's been given this future, plans. And then through him, God used him to be a taste of his grace to his parents. I mean, imagine what that did for Zechariah and Elizabeth to have a child at that age. It was God's grace to them. And then, of course, his mission to lead people to the Lord. 
God worked in and through each of them. So we have to come back to this original question we posed at the beginning. How might God want to work in and through me this Christmas? The answer is this. God wants your relationship with him to deepen. And through you, he wants to draw others closer to him. God wants your relationship with him to deepen. And through you, he wants to draw others closer to him. He wants to work in you and through you. Look, I know Christmas can feel routine. It can feel rehearsed. God wants to do something new in you, in your life this Christmas, in you and through you. He wants you to grasp in a fresh way, on a heart level, the magnitude of God becoming one of us to rescue you, to bring you home. He wants to renovate. He wants to restore. He wants to repurpose your heart this Christmas. He wants to change you. He wants to work in you. And he just, he's there. He loves you. He wants to do something new. Would you pray and ask him to do that? Would you just say, Lord, what you want to do in me this Christmas season, I make myself available to that. Grow me in the ways I need to grow. Change me. Shape me into your image. Help this not to be going through the motions. Would you do the interior work that needs to be done? I submit myself to that. Would you just pray something like that this week and just give this season to the Lord and say, do the work inside of me that needs to be done. He also wants to work through you. He wants you to serve others. He wants to use you to draw others close to him. Who do you know that needs encouragement? Let me put it this way. To what Mary in your life do you need to be an Elizabeth? Who do you know who needs to know Jesus? To what person in your life do you need to be a John? Pointing the way toward Christ, preparing people to see him. Cutting through the noise of the season and saying it is about Christ and what he's done for you and how much he loves you. To whom in your life do you need to be that voice? Jesus wants to use you to accomplish his purposes, which is transformation. Now, that's our mission statement um, at Real Hope. We, we come back to it a lot. We exist to join Jesus in his mission to transform lives. That's why we're here as a church. We want to join Jesus in his mission to transform lives. It's his mission. We didn't make it up. <laughs> we don't have to reinvent the wheel. He's invited us into this mission. And I think when we read that, sometimes we can kind of think like, yeah, Jesus wants to transform other people's lives, and I want to help that happen. But implied in this mission statement is that Jesus also wants to transform us continuously. And so we want to join Jesus in his mission, not only to transform other people's lives, but to be available for the way he wants to transform our lives. He wants to transform us and use us to transform others. And so we want to be active participants in that mission. And that mission was on full display in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth. He changed their lives for the purpose of other people's lives being transformed through their son. And we, we come back to this, this passage in 2 Corinthians a lot because it's such a beautiful articulation of how God works in our lives. 2 Corinthians five seventeen to 20, it says this. And I want you to see if you can notice the in and through piece that we've been talking about. If anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come. Some translations will say, if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. 
All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Did you catch the in and through? In, through Christ, we are new creation. He has made us into something new. We're not a better version of our old self. We are a new creation. He has done that in us for the purpose of us bearing that message of reconciliation to the world, being his ambassadors. In and through, new creation so we can be ambassadors. There are people in our lives who need Jesus, who need to experience the love of the church. There are people in our spheres of influence, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, And we want to equip you and enable you to reach out to them, to begin this conversation, um, to be those ambassadors. And so uh, next week, we're technically starting our Christmas series. This is kind of the prelude to the Christmas series. Um, In your baskets on the table, we have these uh, invite cards, the little uh, green circular invite cards. I'd encourage you to grab a couple of those. Um, Our Christmas series is called A Misfit Story. And we called it this because we want to reach out in a really meaningful and personal way to our community. Um, Because there are people all around us who feel like misfits. They've never felt loved. They've never really felt unconditionally loved or welcomed or accepted. They don't feel like they have a place to belong. They don't feel they're good enough. They wonder about their purpose in life. And they just have been sort of going through life feeling like they don't fit anywhere. They're misfits. I know know I felt that way. Many of us have felt that way. And Jesus was a misfit in his own lifetime. He was not what people expected. He came from a line of misfits. His followers, his friends, misfits. And so we're going to explore that together for the next few weeks. We're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about the hope that is found in him and the fact that there are no misfits in God's eyes. He loves all of us. He invites all of us to know him. And so I want to encourage you to think about someone, to pray about someone, maybe two or three people who you know. Um, to reach out and, and let them know that the church is a place to find belonging in life. And I, I do want to say this. This is important. We come back to this idea a lot. The church is the people. That's biblical. The word for church in the Bible is not, does not refer to a building or an impersonal organization. It refers to the people, us, you and me. We don't go to real hope. We are real hope. The church is the people. And so if you hand someone an invite card to this series, I really want you to understand and and view it this way, that this is not an invitation to an event. Okay, this is just a mechanism to make it easy for you to reach out. This is an invitation for someone to belong with us. And to know Jesus. And to experience life with him and as a part of his body in the church. That's what this is about. And you can have confidence, even we were just reading in the Gospel of Luke, that when you invite someone to come check out our church or come with you to church, uh, you're not starting from scratch. <laughs> you're not all on your own. You know, the Holy Spirit works in people's lives. He, he works in people's hearts. He, and, and so when you ask someone, hey, would you want to come to church with me? You know, we're going to be talking about Jesus and the meaning of what Christmas is really about and the hope and whatever you want to say, you can have confidence the Holy Spirit is involved in that conversation. He's been working in their hearts. He's going to help give you the words. You're not on your own. You don't have to say everything perfectly. That's not what it's like. We can have confidence that just like the Holy Spirit was working in Zechariah and in Elizabeth to work through them, he works in us to work through us. 
in reaching out and letting people know about Jesus and the hope that is found only in him. God is in the business of life change. This is what he does. And you know what? Someone decades from now might look back on the moment that they got this little circle green card as the moment that God put their life on a different path as a transformative moment. And I say that with confidence because that's exactly what happened to me. It was one conversation. I was going to church, but I wasn't that involved. I wasn't that engaged. I went because, like, I don't know, good people go to church, I guess. And, uh, and I went, and one day, and I can remember it with just crystal clarity, someone came up to me and said, hey, why don't you, uh, why don't you come up to the youth ministry with us? I think you'd like it. And I said, okay. And I was there every week for the rest of high school, three years. And that was a pivotal moment. And it was just an invitation. You know, the person didn't sit down and explain to me some grand theological anything. It was, come be a part of this. Come with me. I'd like to, I'd like to go with you. And God used it to change my life. Um, and you just never know who in your circle, in your life, God might have primed for that kind of moment. And it's as simple as saying, I don't know if you have any plans for, for, you know, Christmas this year or, you know, if you'd like to kind of think about or reflect on its deeper meaning, but I love my church. I'd love for you to go with me. I'll meet you there. It's that straightforward. It really doesn't have to be more than that. You just never know what God's going to do. So I would encourage you, I would challenge you to think about a couple of people who don't know Jesus or who maybe they, maybe they used to be in church and they, something really bad happened and they were hurt, and they've gotten jaded over the whole thing, don't write them off. God might want to use you. Remember, he's always working in you, but he wants to work through you as well. So I'm going to pray now that we all see the Christmas season, the Christmas story, a little bit out of season. And we experience in a new way the joy and freedom of the fact that we are new creations in Christ and that we would reach out to others in our spiritual or in our sphere of influence who have spiritual needs, who have physical needs, and help them find, as Zechariah put it, the path of peace. Find the path of peace, which is Jesus, the Prince of Peace. We want to help them find that. God wants to work in and through you and through me this Christmas, through all of us. So let me pray now that He does.